Tonight, we're going to be looking at bodybuilding, essentials for growth. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, all the way to verse 16. In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, we read, But to each one of us grace was given, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. In love. Paul's theme in the chapter is unity. And remember when the opening verses we talked about, he said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with lowliness. That's humility. Gentleness. Long-suffering, which is patience. Putting up with each other. Endeavoring to love one another. These are the ingredients that make unity possible. And so in the midst of this subject of unity, Paul is going to now talk about diversity in the midst of unity. How do we experience unity? We embrace humility, remember, which leads to gentleness, remember, which leads to love, remember, in verses 1 through 6. We're Christians in the body of Christ. We have a lot in common. But like a real human body, there are a lot of complex and unique functions within the body. Elsewhere, Paul will write that we being many are one body, that we're joined and we're fitted together. So Paul shifts gears and will discuss God's gifts and then God's goals for the believer in the body. The Lord Jesus is the one who unifies us. And again, Paul will write that these gifts were given in verses 9 and 10. And what these gifts are in verse 11. In these gifts, we discover Christ's goal for the believer in the body, that they be equipped in verse 12, and that they mature at the end of verse 12 all the way to verse 16. You know, over the years, I've known men and women who were professional bodybuilders. And in order to develop their muscles, they go through a deliberate 
regimen of diet and exercise. They target specific muscles in the body. Now, it's my understanding that they have specific weights for the 640 named muscles in the body. Bodybuilders pay close attention to their muscles. But I'm going to ask you a question. Do you know what the strongest muscle in the body is? Any idea? It is the jaw. That's exactly right. Now, it's my understanding that muscle accounts for 40% of the total body weight. But the masseter muscles in the jaw are located on the side of the face. And I further learned today that they're divided into what's called the deep masseter and the superficial masseter. They're the muscles in your jaw that make biting possible. A person has recorded a bite strength of 975 pounds. That's amazing. So when my bodybuilding friends show me off their muscles, I just grind my teeth. <laughs> there are five passages in the New Testament that list some 20 plus gifts that are recorded. And I'm sure that these gifts aren't the only gifts, but they're found in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 8 through 10. And then again in verses 28 through 30. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. In this section of scripture, Paul is going to focus on body building. It's the building of the body of Christ. And so he's going to give a description of graceful leadership in verses 7 through 11. Encouraging discipleship at the beginning of verse 12. And then maturing fellowship at the end of verse 12 all the way to verse 16. So what are the ingredients for a healthy church body? When I was a kid growing up, we had a television commercial that some of you are young enough to remember. You'll remember Wonder Bread. It helps build bodies in 12 different ways. That's what we were sold, and that's why my mom bought Wonder Bread. Unless she was going to buy Bunny Bread, which I preferred. But human bodies need nutrition. Human bodies need exercise. Human bodies need rest. And so the people in Ephesus must have been asking the question, well, okay, what are we to do as a local church, as the body of Christ? How are we to function? Do we exist in this world to present the gospel to a lost world or provide hope for the hurting, a place of worship, a place of discipleship for the saints? Do we exist to comfort the grieving, feed the hungry, make a provision for the needy? Again, we certainly believe that all of those things are a part of what a church should do. And all of those things are worthwhile. But in the end, the chief reason to exist as a church is to glorify God in Christ. That's our primary function. 
Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, when he says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That word glory is interesting. The word glory and glorify are closely linked to one another. In the Old Testament, they had a word to describe that word. And I, I think I've defined this word for you in the past. Remember the word glory is the sum and the substance of all of the attributes of God. If you were to take all of the attributes of God and put it in a box, all of those attributes combined together would add up to that one word glory. In the Old Testament, it was the word Shekinah or Shekinah. It's spoken of in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, when it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the, of the Lord was that presence of God. In the wilderness wanderings, God guided the children of Israel with a pillar of cloud by day, and then a pillar of fire by night. When the tabernacle was built, his presence rested in that place. It took the form of a brilliant and blinding, bright light. So whatever it means to glorify God, whatever that means, it must mean to invite his presence. It must mean to acknowledge his attributes it must mean to elevate the living God and magnify the Lord. If I were to put it as simply as I can, it is to gather together and make him more and then make us less. You'll remember John the, the Baptist, when he was speaking of Jesus, he said that he must increase and I must decrease. So Paul begins with spiritual gifts in general and gifted and graceful leadership in particular. Paul then encourages personal discipleship followed by mature fellowship. These are the essentials for church body building. Paul doesn't mention numbers of believers. He seems to be more, increased, uh, more interested in their maturity. So it isn't the volume of people in the body that makes it important. It's the maturity. And so it begins with graceful leadership. Look what it says in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In order to understand that, I want to just refer just very quickly back to verse 6. One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul turns from the all in verse 6 to each in verse 7. But to each one of us. Grace is given. The grace that he's making reference to here almost certainly refers to gifts. The word grace has a number of different meanings depending on its context and its use. We think of grace 
in the salvation sense, God's riches at Christ's expense. But there is a grace that accompanies salvation. We're saved by grace. It's the unmerited favor of God. But now there is the grace of gifts. And, and I think that here the grace that is, that is being spoken of is not just simply the grace that accompanies salvation, but the grace or the gifts that accompany salvation within the body of Christ. So Paul's point seems to be that each and every person is given a spiritual gift. All spiritual gifts have a common source. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, we read in verse 7, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Whatever the spiritual gift is and however it's to be used, your spiritual gift doesn't exist for you. It exists for the benefit of everyone. So if you have a spiritual gift and you're not using it the way God intended it, then you're not using it right. In Romans chapter 12, verse 6, we read, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. So when Paul notes that in Romans chapter 12, verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace, you each and every one of you have a different gift, then Paul encourages the Romans to use them. So spiritual gifts are given when we're saved, and then they're used to fulfill God's calling for the reason of building up the body as a whole. Paul is convinced that each believer has been given a gift and that you should use them. And since Paul is convinced that each and every one of you have a gift, I'm convinced that each and every one of you have a gift. So the issue isn't whether or not you have a gift. The issue now becomes, what is that gift? How can I identify that gift? How can I use that gift? Years ago, we posted a, a gift inventory on our website, and I think I might just repost that so that if for whatever reason you're struggling because you hear me speaking and you heard what I just said that Paul said about you, and you go, okay, you've convinced me that I have a gift, but I'm not convinced what that gift is. Well, then guess what? We should find a way to discover what that gift is. The measure of, God, of Christ's gift, verse 7, may refer to the Holy Spirit who in turn gives the specific gift. And so it is okay for you to ask the question, what is my spiritual gift? How will you discover it? How will you exercise it. When you became a Christian, you got graced. I know that that doesn't sound right because 
you're thinking, is grace a verb? Is it a noun? But in a way, it's both. It's like the Texas word fixin'. It can be a noun or a verb or an adverb, depending on how you use it. And the word graced is related to a word that seems almost like a charm that you would put on a bracelet that has meaning. So when you become a Christian, you get graced. You probably heard the expression that somebody got slimed. You know what happens when a person gets slimed, but you may not know what happens when a person gets graced. It means that they have been given an empowering by the Holy Spirit to function in the capacity that they were called to function in. And so, when you become a Christian, you get grace. If you don't believe me, again, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. We're each given a calling by God. That's Christ's gift. And then the power to fulfill it. That's Christ's grace. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, We need both Christ's gift and his grace to exercise our individual spiritual gifts, unquote. And so Chuck Swindoll further defines a spiritual gift as, quote, the supernatural ability Christ gives to his believers that enable them to perform functions in the church with effectiveness and skill, unquote. And I think that that's right. Gifts are given by the Holy Spirit. For what purpose? For the building of the body. So gifted people are given by God to the church. I'm going to repeat this. Christ gives gifted people to the church. They're never given a gift on their own for their own purpose. That would be a meaningless gift. They're, they're not, this gift isn't given by the church that can be acknowledged by the church, but it's not the church that bestows the gift. It's not given by a college. It's not given by a Bible school. It's not given by a college of higher learning or, or whatever way that you get preparation. And there's nothing wrong with getting preparation. Preparation is good. But preparation isn't the same as a supernatural gift. The gift can't be purchased with money. You can't go up to the pastor or go up to a leader and go, I'd like to become an apostle or I'd like to become an evangelist or I'd like to become a pastor teacher. It doesn't work that way. The gifts aren't mere human talents or human abilities. Somebody might have a predisposition towards learning languages, but, but that isn't the supernatural gift of speaking in tongues. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, A spiritual gift is a God-given ability to serve God and other Christians in such a way that God is glorified and believers are edified. This becomes a clue concerning your gift. 
Because if whatever it is that you do, God is glorified and believers are edified, chances are you might have this supernatural gift. If you have a Bible study and 30 people show up and then 20 people show up and then 10 people show up and then it's just you and your wife, the chances are you don't have that gift. If you have the supernatural gift of teaching, then people will be taught. If you have the supernatural gift of evangelism, people will be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that you are exonerated and you go, when I teach, nobody's taught, or when I share the gospel, nobody's ever saved. That doesn't exonerate you and, and say that you don't share the gospel. That's not the point. The point is that human or fleshly talents are never adequate for the work of ministry. And because human or fleshly talents are never adequate for the, for the ministry, if a person tells you, you know, how were you ordained? Well, you know, I, I, I saw an ordination thing at the back of the magazine. It said if I, would, if I would send in $10 that I could be ordained to the church of what's happening now. Well, again, that's not a supernatural empowering or gifting. Now, and I need to bring something up, which I'm going to repeat later. Non-believers aren't gifted by the Holy Spirit. An unbeliever can't, by very definition, have the, these gifts because they're not believers. And so in verses 8 through 10, look what it says. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, before I get into what that's saying, because you're reading it going, what in the world does this mean? Let me preface it by saying, again, we each possess a spiritual gift. The origin of the gift is Jesus himself. Now Paul is going to borrow a line from Psalm 68, verse 18. Paul is going to present a scripture and then he's going to tell us what it means. Now, you might want to go there to Psalm 68. And if you turn in your Bibles there, you'll see in verse 7 that God is pictured as marching in triumph before all of Israel after the exodus from Egypt. When the Lord comes to Sinai, the earth shakes under his feet in, in chapter 68, verse 8 of Psalms. So Psalm 68, 8. All the kings and the armies flee before him while the children of Israel slumber and sleep. He leads a train of captives and then they become his spoils. The treasures of the universe belong to the Lord. Paul the rabbi is singing this song and quoting this scripture that when a conquering king would capture enemies, they were all owned and became the property of the king. They became the spoils of war. Now, even though it's a kind of an unpleasant analogy, you are the spoils of war. You were taken captive by sin and Satan. You were in bondage. When Jesus saved you, he rescued you from sin and from death. He rescued you from hell and from, from 
eternal damnation. That's what Jesus did. He rescued you. He saved you. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, he regained control of the universe. The question then, how did the Messiah ascend into heaven? So Paul, in speaking of this verse, uh, as a a picture, as a messianic picture of what Jesus did for you, he prefaces it by saying, okay, if Jesus ascended into heaven, what did he first do? Well, before he ascended into heaven, he came to the earth. Jesus descended from heaven to Bethlehem's manger where he was born of a virgin. Jesus came down from heaven, occupied a human body, became the Savior, lived the perfect life that you could never live, died on the cross for your sins, and then he rises from the dead. He, so he dies a horrible death on Calvary's cross. The lower parts of the earth have sometimes been interpreted as Hades or hell. Is that what this means in its context? I suspect not. I suspect that Jesus didn't go to the place of the unrighteous dead. But rather, when Jesus dies, Jesus goes to the place of the righteous dead in Luke chapter 23, verses 43 through 46. So Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, this day you will be with me in paradise. Jesus goes to the place of the righteous dead. All of the people from the time of Adam forward who were in Abraham's bosom, he releases them. He springs them from jail. He is going to reconcile them to the Father. So, Jesus comes and he fills all things. Look at verse 10. He fills all things. In what sense? Paul is saying, because Jesus came down to the earth, because he ascended into heaven... He fills all things. In what what sense? He is the source of every blessing. He is the source of every good gift. Remember, James is going to write and he's going to say that the father, who there's no shadow or turning within him. That means no matter which way you turn, no matter which way you go, the father is immutable. He's not subject to change. Jesus is the source of all blessing. In what sense? Of the gifts that are given for the edification of the body. R. Kent Hughes writes, the gifts and enabling grace which we have has been given to us by Jesus. He apportioned them. They come from the conquering king. They are given with great expectation on his part, for he expects us to use them to bring power and victory to the church, unquote. Pause. I want you to think about that and let it sink in for just a moment. Jesus gives you the gift. Jesus expects you to use that gift. Jesus has given you and he expects you to use it. And he's going to give you all of the resources necessary for you to use it. In verse 11, look what it says. And he himself gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Quote, in the Believer's Bible commentary, it says, the names of the gifts are now given. Apostle, 
prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. William MacDonald writes, to our surprise, we find they are men, not natural endowments or talents. These are human beings. These are gifted men and women. You see, the gift is more than just the supernatural ability to do something. It's the supernatural ability to be something for the church. Jesus goes to heaven. The Holy Spirit bestows the gifts. Here, I believe that the emphasis isn't so much on the office that these people occupy, but the gifts that they exercise. And in order for you to understand that, I need to probably explain. I believe that there's the office of apostle, there's the office of prophet and evangelist and pastor teacher, but then there's the supernatural gift of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Let me try and give you an illustration. In our constitution, in order to be the president of the United States, you have to be a natural born citizen and you have to be at least 35 years of age. Now, in order to be the president of the United States, do you have to be elected? The answer is yes. You have to be elected to the office. Now, if a person walks like a president and talks like a president and campaigns like a president and tries to tell you stuff about policy like a president, does that make her or him a president? No. You, they can walk like a president, talk like a president, act like a president, and campaign like a president. But in order to be the president, you have to occupy the office. So there are things that apostles, evangelists, pastors, and teachers do. But that doesn't mean you occupy the office. I think that, again, the emphasis here is on the gifting. And so... An apostle, by the way, is someone sent, like an ambassador. So the word apostle, apostolos, means a man or a woman who's appointed by Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you that it means appointed by Jesus in a twofold way. There was the primary apostolic calling of Jesus for the twelve... And then there's a unique calling appointment by Jesus to plant churches, to preach the gospel, to teach the word. So the 12 apostles, I suspect, occupied a unique office. I suspect that they were called and commissioned by Jesus himself. They're called and commissioned by Jesus for a specific task. In order to be an apostle called by Jesus for that specific task... We later discovered that they had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry. They had to hear him teach. They had to witness his physical resurrection. And so for the person to occupy that office seems remote to me since there's nobody alive who saw Jesus in his earthly ministry heard him with their own ears and witnessed his physical resurrection from the dead. But I believe that the apostolic gifting does exist. My friend Don Stewart defines the function of the apostle this way. He writes, quote, 
the special ability to introduce the message of Jesus Christ to a particular group, perhaps a different culture, and then to disciple those who have believed, unquote. And I believe that this is true. That God gifts men and women to go to specific cultures. He gifts them. He gives them a supernatural ability to love them. He gives them a supernatural ability to care about them and to present the gospel to them. And we might think, well, what if they don't respond? <laughs> Hudson Taylor went to China and if we were to measure the impact of his ministry exclusively on the number of disciples, we would think that he's a gigantic failure. But Hudson Taylor gave his life on the mission field. He, he dressed like the people and he learned their language and he adopted their ways. And even though he didn't see the fruit of his ministry in his own lifetime, if it weren't for him, the incredible outreach to the Chinese people wouldn't be what it is. So God calls people to India. He calls people to, to tribal groups in Africa. He calls people and gives them a supernatural ability to love these people and to minister to these people. I believe that that's a gift. There are those people who self-describe or self-proclaim as apostles, but I don't think they fit the biblical description if they've never exercised or manifested the gift of the apostle. So I believe that there must be some sort of apostolic gifting because Paul warns against false apostles. Why would he warn against false apostles if there was no such thing as true apostles? Again, I suspect there, there can't be a category for false apostle unless there is a category for true apostle. Prophet is a reference to a spokesperson. Or the mouthpiece of God. Prophets receive direct revelation from God. Prophets receive direct revelation and then they pass this information on to the church. But I, again, I think it would be wrong to think of New Testament prophets in the same way as Old Testament prophets. A prophet can speak to an individual or a group or a church. Prophets in this sense isn't, again, the focus on the future. It isn't a person who reveals the future or tells the future. I think that this is the supernatural ability to tell the truth. To tell the truth about Jesus and the gospel and the revelation of Jesus and the revelation of the gospel and all that that means. So, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29 through 31, it says, And God appointed these in the church. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healing, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. And in verse 29, he says, are all apostles. And the way that the word appears in the Greek text, it implies that the answer must be no. Are all prophets? The answer must be no. Are all teachers? 
The answer must be no. Are all workers of miracles? The answer must be no. Do all have gifts of healing? The answer must be no. Do all speak with tongues? The answer must be no. Do all interpret? The answer must be no. But in verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And then he gives us a clue into what the best gift is. And yet I show you a more excellent way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29 through 31. And then he repeats the love chapter that all of you are familiar with. And as you fast forward through the love chapter, you come to chapter 14, verse 1. And then Paul writes, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. So out of all of these gifts, Paul hones in like a laser on one particular gift. And it isn't something glamorous or, you know, where you get your own radio program or or TV program or any of those things. He says that that you should want to... (laughs) prophesy. And what does he mean by that? Again, I think what he means by that is tell the truth about Jesus. Tell the truth about the gospel. And again, the sum and the substance of the body of revelation that's given to us concerning who he is and what he has done. And we also know the word in general was a preacher who proclaimed the word of God was acting in a prophetic role. So the prophet speaks for God, but note, not all people who exercise the gift of prophecy occupied the office of the prophet. The Bible speaks of both men and women who prophesied. How do we know? Acts chapter 21, verse 9. You'll remember it says, Now this man, speaking of Philip, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And so, apparently, this isn't a gift that's unique or restricted to gender, but it is a gift that is given by God supernaturally in order to glorify himself. Prophecy in the Bible had a universal and eternal application. Prophecy today more likely has a specific and temporal application unless it is a reiteration of the word of God. Do you realize you're acting in the role of a prophet every time you say something like this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but that through him the world might be saved. When you open up your Bible and you say the words that it contains and you convey the truth that it reveals, you're acting in the role of a prophet. And so, evangelists, these are the obstetricians in the church. These are the baby doctors. Evangelist comes from a word which means to proclaim the good news, to tell the good news. And and so again, 
I'm going to suggest to you that there are self-described apostles and there are self-described prophets and there are self-described evangelists. What makes a self-described apostle, prophet, or evangelist different from a real one? The real one usually doesn't have to wear a button or a little sign on their chest that says, I'm, a, I'm an apostle, I'm a prophet, I'm an evangelist. Because their real ministry reveals their real gift. And so here, an evangelist is a person who preaches the gospel in such a way that people get saved. So what is the proof that you're an evangelist? If the proof that you're an apostle is that you go to a people group and they hear the gospel and they respond to it, the chances are you really are called to be a missionary. If you preach the gospel and people respond to the gospel, they hear the gospel and they repent of their sin and they turn to the Savior, then the chances are you may have a gift of evangelism. We think of people like Billy Graham. We think of my friend Greg Laurie or Raul Reese. I remember when I was in South America with Raul and we were speaking to a group of Colombian soldiers. These are police officers and soldiers. Raul gets out there and in Spanish, he begins to lay the gospel out. He talks about the love of God, how Jesus came to the earth, how he loves them and how he died for them and how their sin can be forgiven and their hearts can be cleansed and they can be given a new life and that if they want to receive Christ as their savior, that Jesus will come into their heart. He will wash them and cleanse them and he will save them. And I watched 200 police officers and soldiers give their life to Jesus right on the spot. It's a supernatural gift. Billy Graham can preach the gospel. He preaches the gospel, says, God loves you and has a plan for your life. Do you realize you're a sinner in need of a savior? See, now I can talk like Billy and I can even say the words like Billy says them, but you still fall asleep. There are people who have the ability to make the gospel plain and relevant and easy to understand, and they get saved. These are people who have a supernatural ability to peer into the human conscience, to probe the heart, to answer objections, encourage people to respond to the Holy Spirit, to trust and believe the gospel. Evangelists are willing to go out into the unbelieving world and preach the message of hope and salvation. They're willing to appeal to people to hear the gospel and to respond to the gospel, to reach the lost and then bring them into the church. My friend Tom Stipe is a wonderful evangelist. He would say to me, I'll catch them. You clean them. Each one of us has a gift. Each one of us has a calling. There are going to be people who do things way better than you, way better than me. It's really funny to me. Anne Graham Lotz is the Bible teacher in her family. My friend Franklin, he's a wonderful evangelist. Uh, evangelist. But Anne Graham Lotz can preach circles around him. 
She's such a wonderful Bible teacher. And so we, we see that all Christians are commanded to evangelize. But not all are given this supernatural ability and that people respond. The, the final thing is pastor-teacher that he talks about. These, if, if evangelists are the obstetricians, the baby doctors, the pastor-teacher is the pediatrician, the internal medicine specialist. In the Greek language, it seems to suggest that this is one unique gift of pastor-slash-teacher. It's pastor-teacher. The word pastor means shepherd. 1 Peter 5.2 says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. And so the title, pastor, suggests a person who is gentle, tender, encouraging. A person who's able to care. And so this role requires strength and character. The shepherd guides. The shepherd guards. But the but the shepherd must be able to teach. All teachers are not pastors, but all pastors are teachers. Let me help you with a category. All mothers are women, but not all women are, you understand. They occupy this category, but just by virtue of the fact that you're a girl doesn't make you a mother. You have to give birth to a child. All pastors must be teachers, but not all teachers must be pastors. So the church needs pastors and teachers and pastor teachers. I was told of a pastor who prepares a sermon from his easy chair and watches TV on Saturday night. Guess what? This person may have all of the intrinsic abilities to speak and to communicate. But that doesn't mean you necessarily have the supernatural ability to be a pastor teacher. Some pastors have a stable of sermons that they recycle. But the pastor teacher should be able to prepare bread. And when you eat that bread, it tastes fresh and not stale. One of the things that I loved about my pastor, Chuck Smith, wherever I was and whenever I was, when I would hear him speak, do you know what it was like? Have you ever gone home for Thanksgiving and there's fresh baked bread? There's something about fresh baked bread baked bread when you break it open and you put butter on it it tastes good every time when pastor chuck would break the bread of the word of god it doesn't have to be fancy schmancy it's not the cooking channel but every time you put it in your mouth it tastes delicious the apostle the prophet the evangelist, the pastor, teacher. Do you know what they all have in common? A supernatural gifting by God. The second thing that they have to have in common is a, a love for, an understanding of, and a commitment to the word of God. 
Just because an evangelist is an evangelist doesn't exonerate the evangelist from not knowing the Bible. The apostle has to, the, the, the church planter and the missionary has to know the Bible. The pastor teacher has to know the Bible. The evangelist has to know the Bible. The apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor teacher have to be skilled, familiar with God's word. And the true church of Jesus requires a healthy, steady, constant presentation of the word and a feeding on the word. So the pastor teacher combines counsel and console and comfort and correction and confrontation. A Bible teacher should be able to explain what the Bible says and then be able to apply it to our life. No unsaved person can be a gifted apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And so someone might say, well, is it possible that an unbeliever or even a false prophet or a false teacher can give the true gospel and people be saved? The answer is yes. Do you want to know why? Because it's not the false prophet and it's not the false teacher that saves It's the gospel that saves. It's the gospel that saves people. You can hear a person, and this person may not have integrity. This person may not have decency. This person may be the biggest hypocrite that you have ever come in contact with. And you might think, well, how is it possible that people can be saved under their ministry? It's because it's the gospel that saves Jesus saves people. So, the word of God belongs to the church. It's for the edification of the church. It's for the protection of the church. And so the word of God provides the rod and the staff that guides and disciplines the people of God. So frills and fads and entertainment and good fellowship and social standing and religious ritual and and religious activity. For some reason, there are people who who gravitate to religion and they gravitate to, to ritual, but religion and ritual can never replace the word of God and the spirit of God. And the worship of God. And for those of you who are on Sunday, remember, worship isn't something that you get. It's something that you give. Worship requires you to love the Lord. To speak to him. To praise him. To glorify him. And then encouraging discipleship. Look at the beginning of verse 12. For the equipping of the saints... For the work of ministry. Gifted leadership is essential to church health and church growth. Follow Paul's reasoning. Gifted people equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Encouraged disciples are essential to health and growth. Gifted leadership exists to prepare the saints for the work of ministry. 
Here, when Paul uses the term, the work of the ministry, what he means is the work of service. Another way of putting this is the service that you perform for one another. The reason why this is important is because this single statement explodes all the false ministry models that envisions the church as a pyramid with the pastor at the top of the pyramid. Pastors aren't many popes. Pastors aren't the, at the top of the heap in order to rule the roost. The church is not a bus with the pastor as the bus driver and with the congregation along for the ride. That's not the biblical model. The pastor's role, the minister's role, the leader's role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We prepare people for service. Here's the way I would put it. My job is to prepare you to serve each other. My second job is to prepare you for heaven so that when you get there, you know who you are and you know where you belong and you know what you're supposed to do. It's so that when you get there, when we go through the book of Revelation, you go, oh, I remember Geno's talked about this in, in, in Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. And you can go there and you can listen to all of that stuff. It's so that you know when you get there. As a young Christian, I taught Bible studies. I taught children's church. I had a ministry to the poor. The bottom line is this. All of you, without exception, there's not a single exception. No one is an exception. Each and every one of you has a ministry of service to someone who's not you. I don't know how to make it any more plain than that. You have a ministry. Maybe God's called you to the inner city. Maybe God's called you to minister to the poor. Maybe God's called you to a campus ministry. Maybe God's called you to prisoners. Maybe God's called you to help with adoptions or single mothers or homeless shelters. Maybe God has called you to minister to people who are broken, who are hurt, who are helpless in some way, to evangelize the lost, to youth work, to shut-ins, to the elderly, gifted Leaders serve the saints. The saints are gifted to serve everyone inside the body, outside the body of Christ. The saints serve each other and the world. So again, it could be, it, who knows what it is? But it's going to involve someone other than you. And it's going to probably involve you telling them about Jesus. Living Jesus in your life. So the saints serve each other. The body is nourished. The body's built up. Every Christian is a minister. Every Christian is given the gift. And then every Christian is empowered to serve. Do you realize that when you 
neglect your gift or shun your gift or ignore your gift, the, the whole body suffers. And so the pastor should be a person, not so much that you count on, you, you should be able to count on your pastor to love you, to teach you, to feed you. But the good pastor, the truly good pastor, isn't going to point you to himself, but to the Lord Jesus. It is the Lord Jesus who is your sustenance. He is your love. He is your savior. He's the source of your gift. He's the one who empowers you. You're not to become dependent on the pastor. You're to become dependent on the Lord Jesus. So Jesus never intended service to be limited to a few servants or even a few select men or women. Unlike the Marines, we are not the few. We are not the proud. We are not the brave. That's not who we are. I love Marines, simplify Marine. But the body of Christ are the saved, the humble, the gentle, those who are saved to love. We serve the saints. Professional pastors and spectator saints have done more to stunt the body of Christ and retard the church than almost anyone else with the possible exception of Satan himself. And false prophets and false teachers, I'll throw them in. The church grows in health and effectiveness when you do exactly what you're called to do and equipped to do. And then we see the maturing fellowship. Look what it says quickly, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the building up, for we, for, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Pause. I want so bad to spend the next two weeks just on this passage. But let me make it as simple and short as I can. Are you ready? We begin by asking a question. How long am I supposed to preach? How long am I supposed to teach? How long am I supposed to evangelize? How long am I supposed to disciple? How long do I have to keep doing this? Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How long? Until you're mature. Here, perfect means mature. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. How long? I'm supposed to do this until we experience a state of unity, maturity, conformity to Christ. When you are unified and when you are mature and when each and every one of you perfectly reflect the character of Christ, I'm done. So what do you think the chances of me losing my job anytime soon are? Because here's what, what we have to come to grips with. When the Lord takes us home, in heaven we're going to be in full agreement. Some of you can't wait to get there and go, I told you so. 
I knew you would agree with me eventually. I just didn't know that it would mean that I'd have to die and you would have to die. But one day, one day, one day, we are going to be in complete unity, complete faith, complete knowledge of Jesus. Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. John writes in 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. There's going to come a time of unity and maturity and conformity. It's going to happen. And Paul says... There's something that will hold us back, verse 14 and 15, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. When you do what you're supposed to do, unity, maturity, Conformity, the believer discovers and develops their gift by fellowshipping in a congregation of believers. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, quote, gifts are not toys to play with. They're tools to build with. Elsewhere, he says, they're not weapons to fight with or toys to play with, but tools to work together. He says, and if they are not used in love, they become weapons to fight with. When gifts operate in their God-appointed manner, men and women serve each other by the gifts Jesus gives them. And then he gives three quick dangers to be avoided. In those words from verse 14 to 16, he says, red alert, red alert. Avoid immaturity instability, gullibility, immaturity, that we should no longer be children. By the way, the word used here for children are nursing infants. There's a very specific word for children like under the age of three years old. These are nursing children. Few things are more creepy than when you see an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old still nursing. This is what he's talking about. Children nurse. They don't become aggressive in service. They remain small children. They become stunted. Their growth is limited. Elsewhere, Paul says, by this time you should be teachers, but you still need someone to teach you the most basic thing. Unstable. 
immature, spiritually fickle. They ride the bandwagon of every new and usually false fad that blows into town. They fall prey to the shepherding movement, to unhealthy, to prosperity doctrines. They, they want to talk about demons and UFOs and holy laughter and the shack and the emergent church and whatever the latest thing that comes down the pike. They look for something new and novel and exciting. Some Christians are like spiritual gypsies. They wander from fantasy to fantasy to the next fantasy. So they go from immaturity and instability to gullibility. What are the dangers of deception? Young Christians and even older Christians fall prey to religious quackery. Did you hear about this? That's not in the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the scriptures teach. But it sounded so beautiful and it sounded so right and it sounded so elegant. People are unbelievably gullible. And again, we can expect the immature to experience being taken in. And I would be lying to you if I said, oh, by the way, I get it right every time and no one has ever told me anything and I didn't, and I, th and I thought, oh, this is great. Yes, I too have been duped. As Pastor Chuck would say, I was snookered. <laughs> taken in by what seemed like what was right. A so-called missionary once invited himself to a church to get donations. What group are you with, the church said. I'm a member of the invisible group, of the invisible church. What church is that? The invisible church. Who's your pastor? The missionary said, well, your church isn't the true church. I'm a member of the invisible church. Well, the church said, well, then here's some invisible support for your invisible church. We've got to come to grips, and I've got so much, and I, we need to stop. But in verses 15 and 16, it says, But speaking the truth in love, that you would grow in all things unto him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every church supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. You probably understand something. What is the process of growth in the body? It comes from a commitment to Christ. It comes from a commitment to sound doctrine. Paul says, speak the truth. You can't speak the truth unless you know the truth. And you can't speak the truth in love unless you go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. I beseech you that that you walk worthy of the calling by which you were called. Humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. Remember, all of these things encourage the other. You can't speak the truth unless you know the truth. And you can't speak the truth in love unless you really love. If it's spoken in any other way, it results in a false testimony. It's been said that truth without love is brutality and love without truth is hypocrisy <laughs> I think it was Greg Laurie who said too much truth 
I'm going to get it wrong. And you blow up. Too much love, no, wait. Too much love, blow up. Too much truth, dry up. That's what he said. You need both. You need love and truth. Love without truth is hypocrisy. So like children, truth and love are difficult to blend for the immature. It's a sign of health and maturity if you can speak the truth in love. Later, Paul will write to another group and he'll say, have you become my enemies because I told you the truth? He's making every conscious effort to speak the truth in love. In Proverbs 27, 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. In a very real sense, the body produces growth in the body. Think about that for just a moment. Just like you focus on muscles to build the body, it's the church that builds the body. Members feed on the Bible. They feed on prayer and worship and witness for Christ. In addition to growth in size, then they experience maturity and love. So, bodybuilding. It requires graceful leadership, encouraging discipleship, Maturing fellowship. I should have done one passage for each one of those. But we're going to stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that if we're going to be mature instead of immature. Stable instead of unstable. Thoughtful instead of gullible. That, Lord, it's going to require that we grow up. And so, Lord, we pray that maturity would mark our lives. And that what makes unity possible, and even diversity in unity, is that we understand, recognize, and embrace the gift that you've given to us. And then exercise it in the body that you've called us to. And so again, Lord, even now, Lord, I pray that like these elements that we're about to take, Lord, you crush the grape and you crush the grain. That it's, it's, it's the grape that's stomped into its liquid form and it's the grain that's crushed in order to make grain, the, the bread that we can eat, Lord that sometimes we ourselves have to be brought to a place of humility and lowliness so that we would be gentle, so that we would be patient, so that we could exercise love. And Lord, again, as we partake of this communion, we're reminded again what the Bible says, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said take this and eat it all of you this is my body which will be broken for you and again he gave thanks and praise and he took the cup and he said take this and drink it all of you this is the cup of my blood the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant which will be shed for the forgiveness of sin 
broken, shed, sacrificed. Lord, these are the characteristics that make salvation possible. These are the characteristics that make unity possible. These are the things that make gifted men and women able to exercise their gift in the context of a body so that it grows healthy and strong and vibrant. So Lord, minimum we pray, we pray, we pray. For those who don't know their gift, Lord, I pray that you would reveal it to them. And for those who know their gift, that they would exercise it until we all come to maturity, to the fullness of the measure of the stature that's found in Christ. Lord, we pray that this juice and this bread would not just be a simple religious act, but that, Lord, we would obtain spiritual nourishment from the sacrifice of Jesus so that we would be able to grow and mature 